Good morning to each of you. It's good to be together once again today. We continue our series in the life of Elijah. The title of the message is called Earnest Prayer to a Faithful, and I'd like to insert covenant-keeping God. Faith, earnest prayer to a faithful, covenant-keeping God. And that is one of the things that motivates us to continue in prayer and to pray with earnestness. Couple of uh, one thing that I uh, heard this week is a, a story of a Chinese underground pastor that was arrested and put in prison, and it was snowing outside. The guards drug him out, put him to his knees, and, and they knew he was a pastor. And, and the guard says, "I am your God." He says, "No, my God is in heaven. You're not my God." He says, "No, I am your Lord," and he continued on. And he says, "No, my God is in heaven." And of course, the guard took his electric baton that had umpteen volts, I don't remember how many volts, and put it down towards him and said, you will grab this. And the other guards put his hands upon it. And as the voltage began to go through his body and pierce his heart, he cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, have mercy. Immediately, right then, the baton malfunctioned. And suddenly, the man that was down there in all of this pain looks up to this guard and his eyes have terror in them. It's cold and freezing, and there's snow on the ground, and he's breaking out into a sweat. He dropped the baton and ran away. That's just one illustration of how God hears the cries of his people and how when God demonstrates his presence, it is a horror to those around. Another great example, of course, is George Mueller in the mid-19th century in Bristol, England, here he is walking around the town. He sees all these orphan children. England is um, booming. The population's exploding, but there's poverty everywhere. And he has a burden in his heart for these orphans. And he looks in his pocket. He has two pence, like two pennies. And he still says, you know, I'm going to build an orphanage. I, I want to build an orphanage. I want to see these kids cared for. And of course, if you know anything about the story of George Mueller, for 60 years, he fed and clothed and took care of and educated and, and allowed the word to come to over 10,000 orphans. Uh, in fact, if you read his journals and his, especially his um, prayer journal, he attributes 30,000 specific answers to specific prayers. Just a couple of illustrations. One is a baker that could not sleep, and he got a hold of Mueller and said, I just can't sleep. I'm going to go and bake bread extra early this morning, at 1, 2 in the morning, whatever it was. Could you use bread the next morning? Well, they didn't have food for the orphans. And so, of course, he says yes. Another time, providentially, a milk cart or truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. And the man comes and knocks on the door, not knowing that the children had no milk whatsoever, and says, look, this milk's going to spoil. Could you use any of it here at the orphanage? And, you know, again and again and again... The Lord is pleased to answer prayer. Now, he was, he was known as a man of prayer. He didn't say, Lord, I need food. Can you please send it? It wasn't like that. It was he, he really humbled himself and prostrated himself and was a man of prayer. And we see that with Elijah today, once again. And, and it's been interesting. I'll mention it a couple times but uh, you know, throughout. But, I mean, Elijah is a man of prayer from the very beginning until he passes off the scene. This is a man that is being mightily used of God, not in and of his own strength. It's God's strength working through him. And so we see, in a sense, Elijah, he's, he's, a, he's a man of <coughs> immense faith, 
but also one that is given to earnest prayer. So our text today is uh, 1 Kings 18, verses 41 to 46, if you'll turn there. And I'm just going to go back to verse 36 so we can pick up the context of what happened at the end of last week. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was around the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Get up, eat, drink, for there is a sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up and ate and drank. But Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go out now, look out towards the sea. So he went out and he looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back, and this happened seven times. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see your mighty, sovereign power. Lord, as we see you moving and shaking, as it were, that some 2,800 years ago is recorded faithfully in your inerrant word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those that are in awe of who you are and your character. But Lord, also that we would see and appreciate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, magnify him in our hearts as we would study this day and minister to us by your Spirit, we beg. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So, very quick, the context, most of you know it. I know there's some people that haven't been here for all of them. Israel has been given to religious apostasy. They say they worship the God of Israel, but they've allowed the Baals to come in and all of that. And of course, this is King Ahab and Jezebel that is endorsing Baal worship. And so, God sends Elijah to say there will be no rain except for by my word. In other words, it's a challenge that you will be ju- you're being judged because of your religious apostasy. Finally, this contest happens on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal are there, you know, all their religious hoopla for six hours, you know. The first three hours, they're crying out, nothing. The next three, they're gashing themselves. 
Nothing. Then Elijah comes, repairs the altar, uh, puts the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, worships the way that it's prescribed in the Word of God. And then he prays what I had just read, and fire comes down. It's a demonstration of God's mighty power and mighty presence. And everything was consumed. And what was the response of Israel? Remember, we talked about there's those that are wholeheartedly engaging in false worship, those that um, are true followers of Yahweh, but then those that are indifferent. Remember, he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Essentially, how long will you hesitate between two gods? If the Lord is God, worship him. And so the response, widely speaking, is that they fell down on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. That's who's won this contest. Baal is no God. Baal could not answer whatsoever. We saw that as God answers powerfully and consumes everything by the fire, it's a picture of God pouring out his wrath, not on the nation. It's still the elect nation of God, Israel, but upon the sacrifice. And we drew that conclusion of so too for us as the new covenant people. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve to be consumed because we're wretched, wicked sinners. But instead, Christ stands and takes the fire of God's wrath on our behalf. Isn't that good news? The gospel is magnified. So today, as we continue on with this main event, as I've called it, the the fire on Mount Carmel is sort of part one, but the rain that's coming really concludes the main event. That really seals it up, doesn't it? He has shown that he is the real God, but now he needs to show the people that he is the giving God, that he's the gracious God. That he knows they're dying. There's a drought. That livestock is passing away. Corpses are on the ground. Babies are dying because of the drought. He's the giving God. He's the benevolent God despite their sin. For three and a half years, there has been drought and famine. So the text really reveals the character of God. And so we'll look at this really coming from it from how do we pray? How do we pray? And, and, and we see Elijah doing these things, and so we need to remember to humble ourselves when we come to God in prayer. But then to persevere in that prayer, and then to expect triumph as well. It, not that it, you expect exactly what you say, Lord, a Mercedes in my driveway tomorrow. We're not talking about that word faith stuff. But we're talking about that we know that God is sovereign, and He's going to answer in the best way for me in my life and in my walk. So first of all, verses 41 and 42, humble yourself in prayer. Elijah was a man that trusted the word of God. It says that, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Uh, he, He knows that God is going to vindicate himself. And so Elijah is still calling the shots. Ahab, get up, go and eat. And it's interesting that the king of Israel listens to this and Ahab goes to take some nourishment because the rain is coming. And while the king went away, he's happy. But Elijah, where does he go? He climbs to the top of Mount Carmel. Remember, this is about 1,700-foot bluff near the Mediterranean Sea, um, northwest of Jerusalem. And so as they're up there, this contest probably took place not at the very top, but probably partially down because they were getting water and coming up. That would be a long way to take the, the water. But nonetheless... Elijah goes to the very top of Mount Carmel as he tells Ahab to eat. Of course, Elijah could not see the rain, but he heard it with the ears of faith. 
Rain is coming. Though the sky is blue and there's not a cloud in it, for three and a half years the heavens have been shut up like brass, not even dew in the morning, which can water some things. They've been shut up like brass, and yet he knows that God keeps his promises. And so he prays according to the promise of God, and he prays diligently. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He didn't see black clouds coming and hear, see the lightning and all of that, and that's, oh, it's time, I, I'm going to pray. No, it's a conviction of things not seen. If you were paying attention in our scripture reading in 1 Kings 8, that's the dedication of the temple and Solomon's profound prayer. If you want to understand the history of Israel and how God has worked, reading this prayer uh, from beginning to end, of which we only read a short part of it, is very, very instructive. It is a prayer of knowing that God's people will sin. It says, when your people do this, when they are defeated, when they go astray, hear in heaven when they repent and forgive. He's at playing the role of an intercessor, as it were. But notice in verse 35, it's almost like a prediction of this. This is some... I think 80 years previous, 60 to 100 years earlier, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they do pray towards your place and confess your name turn and turning from their sin, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Isn't that interesting? That was also one of the covenant curses if you study Deuteronomy 28 and verse 24. That when you sin, follow this, you will be blessed. Covenant blessings. You go astray, there's going to be covenant curses. And having rain meant life. And so that was a way for God to get their attention. But secondly, notice under this point, verse 42, notice the humble posture in which he prays. The second half, he crouches down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I picture maybe perhaps sitting down, head bowed low, you know, his head and his knees there. Now the text doesn't say that he is praying. It doesn't say he put his head between his knees and then he prayed earnestly. It doesn't say that, right? So how do we know that he's praying? Well, we already know he's a man of prayer, but this is where the New Testament helps us, isn't it? Remember James when it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We we, we know that phrase, right? We say that as a way to encourage us in our, our prayer meetings. But notice what James says as he gives commentary. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Just a weak man, right? And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. It goes on. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain on the earth. And notice this other addition. And the earth produced fruit. In other words, not only it wasn't a one-time shower. This was the rains have returned so that things could grow again and people could eat and, and live a fruitful, productive lifestyle. So this posture of his face between his knees is a, a picture of humility, humbling himself, a perhaps mourning on behalf of the people. He does not go and mingle with all the other people, the celebration of God's people, to go receive the accolades. Elijah, that was just amazing. What a great sermon, or what a great way to, a great prayer, you know, that the fire came down. Where does he go? He secludes himself. He withdraws and goes, as it were, in his closet at the top 
of Mount Carmel. Picture of the reverence of God is what we see here. And, and sadly, brethren, in the modern church, the modern church has lost its fear of God. It, it's lost the idea that we're coming to worship a God that is holy and that we should check our attitudes and, and our posture, as it were. The posture of our hearts is what I'm talking about. We don't have kneeling benches here, but the posture of our hearts. Do we realize who we're coming before when we go to worship God? It's not some flippant little, you know, take it or leave it kind of thing. It's serious business. Our God is a consuming fire. We've learned. All too many have the idea of God just kind of being like an old war buddy that's always there for you, you know? Just when I call out to him, you know, he, he comes and, and does this kind of thing. And they've lowered God so low. Instead of our Father... Our Father, He's close, who art in heaven, it's our genie in a bottle. (laughs) Give me this, give me that. What an insult to Almighty God. We can't figure out the mind of God. We can't even, His thoughts are so much higher above our thoughts. And who are we to think that we can lay out a plan? This is the plan I want for my life, Lord. Now do it, genie, you know. No, Lord, I want to glorify you. I want to live by biblical principles. I want to fear you. I want to love you. I want to raise a godly seed. I want to demonstrate the beautiful picture of Christ and his bride and his church in my marriage. All of these things that God has revealed his will for us and that we have an earnest desire to do those things. Elijah is repeatedly humbled to the point of helpless prayer. Uh, We already read in James that he prays that there would be no rain back in uh, 17.1. And then he prays again when what? The widow's son dies. He's at a loss. He can't just snap his fingers, right? And so he prays earnestly. Three times he stretches himself out upon the child and finally life is restored. He prays for fire. Just in verse 36 and 37 as we saw. Here he's praying for rain according to James. Now, ironically, sneak peek, this will be a few weeks down the road, but in chapter 19, he falls into depression. And in verse 4, he's praying that he would die. (laughs) But God didn't answer that prayer because God knows best. So Elijah is not some superhero prophet that you can buy the little uh, figures at Toys R Us. You know, here's Elijah. Look, this is him calling down fire, push a button you know, match lights or something. He's not an action figure. He's not a superhero. He is a prophet of God. He's representing God. Yes and amen. But he didn't have supernatural powers. James makes that clear. He's a man of like passion, like nature. Like passion, I think, is the old King James as we are. So first of all, humiliation and prayer is essential, brethren. Secondly, perseverance. We need to persevere in our prayer. 43 to 44a. And he said to his servant, go up now and look towards the sea. So he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. And it came about at the seventh time, he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up out of the sea. Do you pray with earnestness and fervency? Well, do you pray? <laughs> Let me just, do you pray first? And then if so, do you pray 
with an earnestness and a fervency as we see demonstrated here. He sends his servant to a mountain peak and he says, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. Back again, reporting, go back again. There's nothing. And Elijah prays more and again and again and there's nothing at all until finally the suspense leaps off the page. But finally, there's a small cloud. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much James wrote, and so he presses on. Uh, Davis, one of the commentators, says, the prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God works his will. He's not limited to that channel, but it provides an, an, an appointed channel. We read in our New Testament scripture reading, Luke 11, remember that yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him what he needs. So ask and it will be given to you. He keeps praying. He keeps sending his servant back. Expectant prayer. That cloud is going to be there. The storm will come. And he keeps sending him back. And finally, there it is. A cloud, a cloud the size of a man's hand on the horizon. Can you imagine a huge horizon and a man's hand. Something very, very small out there. It's a picture that God is with us, and he hears us in our prayers. You can teach a young child this by putting a child in the bedroom and saying, say your prayers and having them hold a thread, and you're holding the thread down the hallway, and that when they pray, say, pull that thread, and then you pull it, and you pull it back, and it's an indication that, that anytime you pray, God is there, and he hears. He is ever with us. So brothers and sisters, how often... Do we pray about something seven times? How often do we demonstrate earnestness? Oh, that we would be earnest, that we would uh, put more, that we would believe uh, and have more earnest prayer. God finds real pleasure in stirring up his people into uh, a diligent, faithful prayer. There's been so many prayers that I've seen answered not only in my own life, but in the life of the church. Prayers that have been prayed dozens and dozens and dozens of times that God answers. Those that can't conceive. Those that want a tumor to disappear. By God's grace, He does that. And, and does the cancer return sometimes? Yes. But, but still, the, God has just answered in so many ways. Those looking for a spouse and getting married. A myriad of ways. God uses means. He has he, everything, Right? But he uses means for the distribution of his goodness. Finds real pleasure in stirring us up that we would be earnest and praying that we would grow in holiness, that we would be more fruitful, that we would be more faithful with our family and training our children and those kinds of things. We pray because we continually want to improve and that our progress might be seen by all. Like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first. The kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you. In other words, seek to glorify God and to give your life completely to Him. And then these things will naturally fall into place. Well, notice Elijah's prayers are marked by great faith. He doesn't give up. He believes the promises of God for us. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who confesses his sins 
Uh, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and will forgive your sins. These are promises that we cling to, that we want close to our heart. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all, more than what we could ask or think. Faith prays expectantly. Not that we put confidence in ourselves or think that God is unable to answer. No, but we expect great things. Why? Because we're praying to a great God. How does that hymn go? Large petitions with thee bring, for thou art coming to a king. I love that. Sometimes we limit, as it were, and in our finite mind, we limit what God can do by thinking God is so small. He's so great. I I love the story in Acts 12, Peter's in prison. The early church is meeting. They're praying, right? They're praying for the release of Peter. An angel comes, releases Peter. Peter goes to the house, knocks on the door. The servant girl answers and doesn't believe her eyes, or or actually goes in and reports to everybody else, Peter's at the door. And they said, no, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. That's a paraphrase. But they're praying for something, but then it's like you don't really believe that God can do that, and God did it in that situation. The servant finally comes back to Elijah. There's a cloud, small cloud, coming up out of the sea. Faith sees the small cloud. Genuine faith in God and faith in, in knowing that He is working in your life and desiring good things sees and does not despise the day of small things. The small workings of God are in our perception. The small fruit you see in your children after disciplining them again and again and again. Don't touch that. I said, don't pick that up. Okay, you know what the consequences are again and again. And finally they get it. A marriage that you think you've given up on, but, but yet you begin to see that it is growing stronger and that there is more of a, a, a picture of Christ in the church and, and you're encouraged. Gaining victory over a personal uh, struggle with a particular sin. Begging God to bless the rescue mission Bible study with the women who are, who are down low at a part of their life, but you see lights going on and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and professions of faith. The conversations at Balboa Park and Adams Avenue, the same kind of thing. You, you, boy, this was a dull day. The next Saturday, you know, there's all these great conversations and God uses it. Faith sees the small things and takes encouragement knowing that God is sovereign. He is working in these situations. Of course, when we pray, we have to pray in full submission to the will of God. Full submission to His will. 1 John 5.14, if we ask anything according to His will, He what? Hears us. So we've seen the prophet's humiliation in prayer, his perseverance, and then finally, the triumph that results from prayer and verse 44b to 46. Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. And in a little while the sky grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. God showers Israel here with covenant blessings and rain. Okay, The rain is a sign of covenant blessings. Elijah did not wait. He sent word to Ahab to prepare his chariot to leave. Now, Ahab had probably come with a huge entourage. I mean, there's already 450 prophets 
maybe 850 prophets, depending on how you read that. But there's a huge amount of people, so he probably brought a huge entourage. And of course, they're feasting and all of that. I mean, he is the king, but the warning is given. Eat, drink, and then head back to your palace. So he prays again, and of course, the sky pours forth rain. Uh, One commentator said, Israel is to learn again this day that the God who sends fire to convert their hearts will also send rain to refresh and feed their bodies. Last Sunday night, we had the privilege of speaking with um, our missionary in East India. He told us that there's been a drought for over a month. The rice fields are suffering and the people are suffering. They can't catch fish. And we prayed here, and some of us prayed throughout the week. And it drizzled for two days, and then when I spoke with him two, two nights ago, it had been raining hard for two or three days. And so God had answered that and shown his blessing upon that part of the, the world. When I was in Arizona speaking at that men's retreat about four weeks ago or so on the Saturday afternoon, right after the speaking stopped because it was outdoor, um, <laughs> We retreated to a house, and way off in the distance, I saw just a little bit of dark clouds, and I said, wouldn't that be awesome if a thunderstorm came right over us? And then it grew larger and larger, and pretty soon half the sky is taken up with this. Lord, please don't let it go to the north or the south. And it blew right over us, and eventually there's wind, and eventually there's thunder and lightning, and then finally rain and even some hail. And that's the idea here. There's something off in the distance that the servant sees, but it's the promise of something larger coming. This comes in the path of obedience and dependence upon God. God's grace is once again manifested to these rebel hearts, to these these people that are so prone to wonder, Israel. Those on Mount Carmel were shown grace. and So at Carmel, the judgment of God is followed by rain. And so too, some 800 years later, on Mount Calvary, Christ, who was baptized with fire on the cross, taking all the wrath that we deserve, comes later and baptizes all of his disciples with the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and ascension. While the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, we see there at the end, the heavy shower comes. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and then verse 46, then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab. Now, why does Ahab go to Jezreel? That's where his summer palace was. Excuse me. Most likely, Jezebel is there. There's no indication of her presence at this event on Mount Carmel. And we pretty much know that she wasn't there, because if you look at 19.1 and 2, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, so may the gods to do to me and more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time. That's the threat, the threat to Elijah that You killed my prophets, those that eat at my table, literally, and you slaughtered them. May may the same happen to me if I do not execute you by tomorrow this time. But that's for next week. So we know that Jezebel was not there. 
This is about a 17-mile trek, okay, down the mountain and um, eastward. And um, some people say, well, wait a minute, how could, was Elijah, uh, you know, a marathon runner or something like that? Uh, I don't know. He's, he's going in the Lord's strength, surely, and, and Arab runners could run up to 100 miles in a two-day period, so to run 17 miles is certainly possible. Now, some say, well, was this some kind of race? I mean, kids like races, right? So you can get to the fence and back first, you know, and was this some kind of race? No, this wasn't a race. I think that this is actually a sign of respect that Elijah is trying to put back in the proper order of the people to respect the king for sake of their office, okay? And so he's running ahead, and what would happen? The, you know, the entourage would go up ahead to, to welcome the king as he came in later. They would, there, would be there to welcome him and that kind of thing. And so uh, I think it's a sign of respect. One man said, his zeal for the king of kings demanded respect for the king of Israel. So by virtue of his office. And it's, it's hard to run. You know, when you got bad knees and arthritis and all of that, it's hard to run three miles. Even some kids have a hard time running that, that distance. But Elijah goes in the strength of the Lord. The New English translation translates it like this. The Lord energized Elijah with power, and he tucked his robe into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. The joy of the Lord was his strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul had said. But there's something else here. There's a covenant renewal that's taking place, that's to, that, that happened on Carmel, and that, that's taking place, that, that the offices of the king and the prophet um, would be put back into order. That is, the prophet would be the one that would bear the word of God and, and come to the king in submission to the king, but also to give the wisdom of the will of God so that the king would know that, rather than the king going off in what seemed right in his own heart. He proceeded as the bearer of God's word to go before Ahab. And God is putting a demand on Ahab. He must not rule according to what his own fancy would be, but royal power must seek prophetic direction. So there's a covenant renewal. There's one of those you see in Exodus 24 where the, 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 uh, where the people, there's, there's a restoration of the covenant the elders at Sinai, and so the covenant blessings would be restored to the nation. Think of the thoughts in Ahab's brain. I mean, that's, this is the last thing that he expected to happen. All of these prophets being slaughtered, his mind spinning, he's heard the pitiful cries and the empty prayers of these prophets calling out to Baal. He's seen all the blood of them being, uh, you know, lancing themselves He sees a calm and courageous prophet coming in the name of Yahweh. He sees the execution of all of those prophets. You know, and then the wind and the darkness and finally the downpour. I mean, Ahab's got to be thinking something here. What incredible grace that God manifests himself to Ahab in this way. He was permitted, he who permitted Baal worship allowed the construction of these idols to be worshiped. And he's a wicked man that stands idle as Jezebel is really calling the shots in the kingdom there. And yet in mercy, he has shown the path of repentance and salvation along with the people of God. Quoting Davis once again, he embellishes that 
As he nears the palace at the end of that 17 uh, miles, he sees the light on and the queen's quarters. Ahab has an offer of grace in his hand, but his feet will soon stand in the devil's bedroom. I think that's a good embellishment because he has to go face Jezebel, and there's probably quite a bit of fear. I wonder if there's one here today like Ahab that's timid and doesn't, that lacks the conviction, that's done terrible things, and God extends His grace week after week. If you will but turn from your sin and repent and come and embrace Christ by faith, you can be saved. But yet, you leave this place and you return to your Jezebel lifestyle. Hear the call of God. Come to Him. He's altogether gracious. Ahab was spineless, no convictions. He lacked character. And it's a fitting conclusion to the chapter that at the very beginning, Obadiah is terrified of Ahab in 18.1, right? What? Go and tell Ahab, Elijah's here, he'll kill me, and all of that, to where Ahab really shows himself in submission to Elijah. Well, what can we learn and apply? We've looked at the humiliation in prayer, perseverance in prayer, and pray for expected triumph. One of the uh, England uh, pastors, Edward Payson, uh, the 19th century, said this, prayer is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing necessary to minister. Pray, therefore, my dear brother. Pray, pray, pray. And I ask you, do you pray, my friend? If you profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to have a vital relationship with Him, do you commune with Him? Do you pray with Him? I, I mean, can you imagine being married and going a month and not talking to your wife? Of course not, right? So how, do we, well, how is it that we can go even a day without talking to our God who's demonstrated such love and desire for communion to us as sons and daughters of the King? We've been given royal status, adopted into the family of God. And to be given royal status and to go run in your, your little room in the castle, of the, to use that imagery, and to never talk to the king is folly. Sometimes we awake, we hit the snooze button maybe, and we awake and it's too late. Morning's gone. And then, you know, we, we've worked hard all day and then in the evening, <laughs> a little tired. It's just easier to maybe surf the internet or watch some television show if anybody does that anymore still uh but you know it's just there's there's always these things and bunyan says he who runs from god in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day i'm convinced starting the day to as many days that it's possible for you to make the discipline to give some time to god in prayer and in his word but then how do we pray? Sometimes our prayers, when we do pray, are so wimpy. They're so empty. They're, they, and, and, and God knows. He, he, know, he understands our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, it says in Romans 8, and with utterances too deep for, for us to understand as He intercedes for us. But we should be those given to earnestness that we pray those seven times and even more. We are to pray faithfully and to pray expectantly. Andrew Murray, in his book on prayer, I don't recommend everything he's, uh, he's written, but God's child can conquer anything by prayer. It is 
Is it any wonder that Satan does his utmost to snatch that weapon from the Christian and to hinder him from using it? It's no wonder at all. This is why, brethren, we must devote ourselves to prayer. Colossians 4.2 Keeping alert in it. Devoting ourselves. Not just lack of direction, kind of willy-nilly, a little this and that, but focus, earnest, prayer for the glory of God in your lives. Spurgeon says, It is well for us to fix our eyes upon the blood of the one offering for sin. Sin mingles even with our holy things. Our best repentance, our best prayer and faith and thanksgiving could not be received were it not for the merit of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so we go recognizing our union with Christ that we're praying because we know He's praying for us. And then finally, we see the Gospel here gloriously. We see Elijah as an intercessor on behalf of the people, right? He doesn't go to the after-fire party or whatever, you know. He goes and he prays earnestly and earnestly prays for rain. He's mightily used of God. He's a mediator for the people. He brought the drought to an end uh, under God's, and within God's providence. And through his mediation, God shows mercy to the nation, so too Jesus Christ is our intercessor. He's the only mediator between God and man. And 2,000 years ago on the cross, the heavens were closed to Jesus so that they might be open to us unworthy sinners as the Father poured out His wrath on His Son. And the Son says, why have you forsaken me? We are like those Israelites, often wanting the middle of the road, vacillating between two opinions, half-hearted, and yet God offers His marvelous, matchless grace to us, even in our weakness, even in our frailty, on the basis of what? The work of Christ, because He paid it all. Zechariah says that in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. In Revelation, you have a picture of God's people there in heaven. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? They washed their robes in blood and made them white. It's the righteousness of Christ. It is His blood and His sacrifice that has brought us near to God. Ephesians 2 communicates that. You who were formerly afar off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation today? Oh yes, I have, but also I've done a lot of good deeds through my life. I've got both, just in case. Jesus and my good works, that will damn you. Nothing in my hand, I bring, the hymn writer said, simply to your cross I cling. May the Lord work in each of our hearts to stir us to be used for His glory and to be those that pray as we ought. Our Father, we thank You for this passage before us. We thank You for the demonstration of Your matchless mercy. You are gracious pouring out upon the nation of that rain signs of life and covenant renewal. Lord, even within our own lives, we can, as it were, hit the guardrail and flip over the guardrail or fall down. But Lord, I pray that you would cause us to rise up again. The righteous man falls and gets up seven times. And so Lord, that there would be even renewal within our own hearts before you. 
Lord, that we might be those that are earnest in giving you glory in every area of our life, in, the, in our families, in our own individual walks, in the church, and in the workplace, and in the community. Lord, use us for your glory. We thank you for this demonstration of your power, O God, demonstration of your gracious and faithfulness to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.